I'm going to go over everything to do with the shooting, including implications, shockwaves, and the current state of anti-Semitism. Let's start with the shooting. Saturday, October 27, 2018, a gunman entered the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. According to the former president of Tree of Life, there were three congregations meeting at around the same time on the Saturday morning, probably totaling around 100 people, numbering a large number of elderly. The gunman was armed with three pistols and a semi-automatic assault-style rifle. He opened fire, killing many. The dead include a 97-year-old woman, a husband and wife, and two brothers. The suspect, Robert Bowers, allegedly burst in through an open door, screaming anti-Semitic slogans and shooting. He is a 46-year-old Pittsburgh resident who is also accused of wounding six other people, including three police officers shot during a firefight. The FBI has reported that Bowers was not previously known to law enforcement. He was charged with 29 counts of federal crimes of violence and firearms offenses, federal prosecutors said late Saturday. Among the charges are 11 counts of using a firearm to kill. Those charges alone carry a maximum penalty of death, although at the time of this recording, no decision has been made about the death penalty. According to a federal criminal complaint released Sunday, Bowers told a SWAT officer after being shot and captured, they're committing genocide to my people. He said, I just want to kill Jews. The synagogue was holding its regular Saturday 9.45 a.m. service when Bowers allegedly entered and began shooting. The synagogue is located in the Squirrel Hill neighborhood of Pittsburgh and did not have armed security guards. Police dispatched officers one minute after receiving calls about an active shooter at 9.54 a.m., According to police, Bowers left the building and shot one of the responding officers before retreating back into the synagogue. According to a criminal complaint, officers pursued Bowers up to the synagogue's third floor. He then allegedly opened fire, shooting two officers multiple times and wounding one of them critically before he himself was wounded in the gun battle and then captured. Bloody bodies lay scattered throughout the synagogue. Three women and eight men had been murdered and two other worshippers were wounded. Four police officers were also wounded, three shot, and one hit by shrapnel, and were reported to be in stable condition late Saturday. Jonathan Greenblatt, CEO and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League, said, This was the single most lethal and violent attack on the Jewish community in the history of the country. We've never had an attack of such depravity where so many people were killed. When you go into a synagogue saying, I want to kill all the Jews, that's a hate crime. On Saturday, the ADL reported that anti-Semitic incidents rose 57% in 2017. 1,986 documented events. Jones, the FBI special agent in charge, said this is the most horrific crime seen I've seen in 22 years with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Attorney General Jeff Sessions called the shooting reprehensible and utterly repugnant to the values of this nation and said that the Justice Department will file hate crime and other charges that could lead to the death penalty. 
The actions of Robert Bowers represent the worst of humanity, said Brady, the prosecuting U.S. attorney for the Western District of Pennsylvania. Justice in this case will be swift and it will be severe. Donald Trump tweeted, All of America is in mourning over the mass murder of Jewish Americans at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. We pray for those who perished and their loved ones. And our hearts go out to the brave police officers who sustained serious injuries. This evil anti-Semitic attack is an assault on humanity. It will take all of us working together to extract the poison of anti-Semitism from our world. We must unite to conquer hate. Obama, Barack Obama, tweeted, We grieve for the Americans murdered in Pittsburgh. All of us have to fight the rise of anti-Semitism and hateful rhetoric against those who look, love, or pray differently. And we have to stop making it so easy for those who want to harm the innocent to get their hands on a gun. An immediate pivot, I might add, to gun control. Never let a crisis go to waste. Right, Barry? Barack Obama's complaints about the rise of anti-Semitism, a little tough to take. Here's a picture, which was taken in 2005. I do believe that the photographer held onto it for political reasons. This was when Barack Obama was a senator, and he met with Louis Farrakhan, the virulently anti-Semitic leader of the Nation of Islam. According to Newsmax, a former top deputy to Nation of Islam leader, Louis Farrakhan, tells Newsmax that Barack Obama's ties to the black nationalist movement in Chicago run deep, and that for many years the two men have had, quote, an open line between them, end quote, to discuss policy and strategy either directly or through intermediaries. The Anti-Defamation League has denounced Farrakhan and his Nation of Islam as a hate group. Farrakhan has expressed admiration for Adolf Hitler. And you can, you, you can look up everything that he's got to say of all of this. According to Newsmax as well, earlier this year, a pro-Clinton blog run by former CIA officer Larry Johnson unearthed a 2004 photograph showing Michelle Obama and Farrakhan's wife, Mother Khadija Farrakhan, at an event hosted by Jackson Citizenship Education Foundation. The left and its relationship to anti-Semitism is, let's be as charitable as humanly possible in this time of difficulty and say it is complex. The left seems to have a soft spot for radical Muslims who are not known to be motivated by their love of either Jews or of Israel. Barack Obama was instrumental in getting ISIS up and running. And he is uh, smiling away with Louis Farrakhan. So, I take it with a grain of salt. Now, these are the bare facts of what's going on. I really do want to talk about anti-Semitism as a whole because I agree that it does seem to be on the rise and it's based upon, I think, some misconceptions. So, let's, let's turn to that. Let's look at the current state of Judaism in America, because I really want to push back against this idea that the Jews are this big monolithic blob that are expanding in power and influence and, and control no matter what. Let's look at Judaism in America. Let's start to deal with some actual facts. These numbers are a little bit old, but very telling. 
1996 to 2001, in the United States, nearly half, which is 47% of Jews who married during this time, married non-Jewish partners. Now, as you probably know, Judaism is a matrilineal religion, right? So it descends through the mother. If you're born of a Jewish mother, you are considered to be Jewish. There's some confusion about this. I had a Jewish step-grandmother, but my mother was my mother and my grandmother were not Jewish. But if a Jewish man marries a non-Jewish woman, the children are not considered to be Jewish by most faiths. So that is a significant dilution. I want to make the case here that this collectivism, this abandoning of history and of tradition and of culture, this postmodernism, this horrible growth of, of socialism and this collectivist impulse is taking over Judaism just as it is also taking over Christianity, just as it has taken over the universities, just as it has taken over the media, just as it has taken over just about everything you can put your finger on, just as it has taken over the papacy. This rot is everywhere, and I believe it is also within the Jewish community. The 1990 National Jewish Population Survey reported an intermarriage rate of 52% among American Jews. So, again, a significant dilution of history, of culture, of a religion that goes back 5,000 years can all be ended relatively quickly. Now, in America, partly because people are marrying later, partly because of this intermarriage issue, the Jewish community is decreasing dramatically. For every 20 adult Jews, there are now only 17 Jewish children. A significant diminishment, of course. It doesn't take long. Some religious conservatives in the Jewish community now even refer metaphorically to intermarriage as a silent holocaust. This problem of intermarriage, this problem of even if the children are considered Jewish, whether the rituals are continued to be observed, whether rituals are continued to be observed, is a significant issue. Because this all may lead to the gradual dying out of Judaism, and many Jewish leaders regard this as a significant crisis. The 2000 National Jewish Population Survey found that only a third of interfaith, interfaith couples raised their children Jewish, despite increasing efforts in the Reform and conservative communities to welcome interfaith couples. So half are marrying non-Jewish partners, a third, only a third of interfaith couples raised their children Jewish. In a way, this is Japanese-style levels of depopulation. So identity and, and history and tradition are dying. They're under attack all over the world. Pulling down statues, denying history, denying virtue, denying positivity. And it's happening within the Jewish community. Just so, Let's find the people who want to continue to live rationally and with some sense of tradition and community and stop painting everyone with a broad, broad brush. These are facts. The sources are below. So intermarried Jews are far less likely to be involved in Jewish activities. Here are some comparisons. 85% of Jewish couples have or attend a Pesach Seder, while only 47%, sorry, 41% of intermarried Jews do. You understand? Less than half of the intermarried Jews do this. 66% of Jewish couples fast on Yom Kippur, while only 26% of intermarried Jews do. Right? Somewhere between... A third and a half. 59% of Jewish couples belong to a synagogue, while only 15% of intermarried Jews do. And there's a reason why there were so many older people in the synagogue. 
tradition, values, depth, history is being scoured clean from communities all over the world. Jamie Allen Black, executive director of the Jewish Women's Foundation of New York, said 48% of women of childbearing age are without children, up from 35% in 1976. So this idea that, you know, how do you diminish a population? Well, you tell the women to go get educated, to go get careers, to go dedicate themselves to making money rather than making babies. And you tell them to make the money first, and you can have the babies later at some point when you have to sift through the detritus of half-broken, half-divorced, half-crazed men in your 30s and hope that your eggs aren't drying up like a cup of water smack dab in the center of the Sahara. That's what you do. You inflame women's ambition. You dry up their wombs. You diminish the tribe. This happens all over the world. Well, all over the West. And the Jewish community is as susceptible to this as every other community. Is there no possibility to find common cause? Israel. You want to see some exciting stuff in Israel? I'll put the link to this below. This is from Ariane Azizi. She's an investigative journalist. She says, It is not a man's world in Israel. Far from it. Feminists continue with dismantling men and families at an alarming rate, as M.K. Merav Michele calls for strangers nominated by the government to share in the role of raising the state's children. Get the man out of the house, dismantle the family, have the state move in, 1984-style, Khmer Rouge, Cambodia-style, to raise the children. Have the government displace the father, just as the welfare state has done, just as daycare has done, just as kindergarten has done. It's happening in Israel. You see, there are facts slow-tempered from a brutal history that are being dismantled in a few months, in a few years. And it is happening all over the world, with some exceptions. Mariana goes on to say, ask most men in Israel what they think of Israeli women. A huge percentage, percentage would tell you they're actually afraid of them. Sounds ridiculous. They have good reason to be afraid. What's that, Jigtow? Radical feminism is rampant in the country. Family laws are dominated by the rights of just women. Men can be destroyed in a heartbeat by a woman who plans revenge on a man. You think Kavanaugh is just happening in... Anyway. False claims where women have impunity haven't moved on, even though a law was adopted nearly, adapted nearly two years ago. Perhaps if women went to prison or feared punishment for lying, things would change. The culture is now entrenched into believing women over men almost 100% of the time. Do you think in the West, if you're interested in men's rights or basic justice inequality, do you think that you have nothing in common? With the men in Israel? Divide, 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 you see? She says, this video made by RT Television highlights the problem exactly. It is not the exception, it is the rule. An extraordinary part of the video shows a woman screaming and slapping herself as she called the police, then acting as if she was terrified the moment the police arrived. False accusations, no proof required, no punishment has led Israel into a country of prima donnas in tens of thousands of cases. If a man raises his hand to protect himself from a violent woman, it will be he who goes to prison. 
in very few places in the West, in Israel, is this not occurring. Let's talk about Miref Makeli. She is an Israeli Knesset's member and a former journalist, a TV anchor, a radio broadcaster, and activist. And in a Q&A talk, I think this was in Australia, Michele detailed the kind of society she aims for, and I quote, This is not funny. The core family, as we know it today, unfortunately, is the least safe place for children. The custody, this total custody that we have in this structure of marriage, which still gives men complete domination over the children, and too often over the women who are called wives, is the part, really, the unbelievable hurt in children. Her make-believe world, according to the article, doesn't stop here. I believe, she says, I believe that instead of marriage, the state should offer two kinds of default agreements. One is custody over children. A child can have more than two parents. They don't have necessarily to be his biological parents or her biological parents. The person who takes responsibility for the child needs to be obligated for certain criteria that the state should actually decide on. A shared household cannot necessarily have to rely on couplehood or sexuality or romance. It can be roommates. It can be sisters. It can be friends. And it can be a couple who love each other and wants to live happily, wants to live together happily ever after. I mean, the safest place for children is in a pair-bonded married household. The children of single mothers are more than 30 times as likely to be abused by non-related men cycling in and out of the single mom's sweaty bed. But you see, if you're a collectivist, if you're on the left, you want to provoke as much fear, anxiety, and terror in childhood as possible because then you grow up anxious, easy to control, a snowflake, volatile, easy to lead, filled with a churning resentment and rage that sophists can channel towards people that they want you to harm. And dependent on the state. Can't depend on your community, can't depend on your parents. Dependent upon the state. Break the bond between child and parent. Replace that bond with allegiance to the state. It's as tale as old as Plato's Republic. And we just damn well don't seem to learn from it. So, this is uh, from another article. Israel has two major political parties. These parties include the current ruling party, Likud, which is led by Benjamin Netanyahu, who believes in and practices a neo-capitalist ideology. Likud have been in power frequently since the year of 1977. The other major political party is the Labour Party that is led by Isaac Herzog. The Labour Party is based on primarily socialist values and principles. See, it's the same span. In Canada, you have the progressive conservatives and the liberals in the NDP. In America, you have the Democrats and you have the Republicans. In England, you have the conservatives, you have the Labour. And here you have the Labour Party and Likud. Individualism, free markets, tradition versus collectivism, state redistribution, state control, socialism. Same battle as being fought in Israel as is being fought everywhere else. And, and people who want to put Jews into some kind of big blob, they all have the same characteristics. It's wrong. It's factually incorrect. It's not just a lack of subtlety, it's a lack of reality. Now, for more on why all of this is occurring in terms of like the conservatives, the liberals, and so on, you can watch my presentation called Gene Wars. I will link to it below. It's essential for understanding 
what on earth is going on in the modern world. Basically, when you create a situation of seemingly infinite abundance, you dissolve ties between human beings, which are developed for situations of scarcity and cross-reliance. You watch that presentation. It's very, very important. So now I want to just move to the topic of anti-Semitism as a whole. And I, listen, I want to be very clear about my own history and experiences with this, because if you don't know where I'm coming from, it's kind of tough to analyze why I'm bringing these particular facts to bear on the situation. So let's talk about that with your kind indulgence. So let's speak frankly about all of this. And let us also understand that in any large aggregation of people, there are going to be good people, there are going to be mediocre people, and there are going to be bad people. This is true in Judaism, this is true in Christianity, this is true in Islam, and there are also some absolutely terrible Buddhists out there as well. So trying to put everyone into one giant group, listen, belief systems that have survived have a great deal of complexity in them. So if you are a good person, and you are a Jew, a Christian, a Muslim, or a Buddhist, or a Zoroastrian, or whatever, then you will find the parts of the text that reflect and amplify your goodness, your sensitivity, your empathy, your curiosity, and your love for humanity, and you will find texts within those belief systems to amplify that particular perspective. If you are a bad, nasty person, you will, in those belief systems, find texts which will help justify the bad and nasty stuff that you want to do as well. The problem is not the text as a whole, the problem is the way in which human personality works, the shuffling and genetic aspects of human personality. And as a rational, empirical philosopher, I oppose theology as the basis for knowledge. Theology is not a rational and empirical way to gain knowledge, either of the universe or of morality in the long run. Although, I do respect the role that until atheists can provide a better system of morality than religion has provided, it's kind of tough to let go of one without having a hold of the other. Theology tends to amplify people's innate tendencies. It makes people more of what they already are, for better or for worse, or for the mediocre. They're kind of like steroids for personality traits. So yes, you can look back through the history of religions and you can find good or bad people among them. But my particular perspective, and I find this very interesting, and it's very strange for me to look at all of this anti-Semitism. So when I was raised as a Christian, when I was raised uh, in a secular, more secular environment as a Christian, I did not get philosophy, I did not get rational thought, I did not get empiricism provided to me by that environment. It was a lot of Jewish thinkers who helped me to learn about how to think, how to uh, understand the free market, the value of small government, uh, why capitalism is, is valuable. It was probably about 50-50 Jewish to non-Jewish. Now, I didn't really care at the time. Like, I didn't sit there and say, oh, well, that's a Jewish surname. Well, that's not a Jewish surname, so that's going to condition how I read. I just read voraciously, and whoever was the most interesting and made the best arguments, I would pursue. So for um, metaphysics and epistemology, you can get some great stuff from Jewish philosophers. I was very influenced by Ayn Rand. If you want to look at self-knowledge, uh, Nathaniel Brandon uh, is, is quite good regarding that. So I just read a lot of free market, anti-welfare state, small government, pro-capitalist economists and philosophers, and a lot of them were either directly Jewish or came from a Jewish background. And I didn't really notice or process this really until later. I mean, for instance, look at Milton Friedman, a great economist, who was one of the people who said you can have open borders or you can have a welfare state, you just can't have both. 
Now, Milton Friedman's parents were mildly observant Jewish uh, people, um, Jewish mother and father. And Friedman was very pious as a kid, but then he rejected religion and described himself as an agnostic. And his son, David Friedman, wrote some great books, including The Machinery of Freedom, which is a no-government tract. And I was just running through this in my head. The people who I read when I was younger, and I just picked out the ones who were Jewish or at least half-Jewish. They've got Ayn Rand, Marie Rothbard, Ludwig von Mises, Barry Goldwater, Henry Hazlitt. Uh, Goldwater and Hazlitt were half-Jewish. Walter Block, uh, David Ricardo, uh, he was raised Jewish but converted to Quakerism, I think, as a result of a love affair. And there's people, I mean, I could go on and on. There's people in the modern world I've had on my show who I respect their thinking and have learned a lot from, Peter Schiff, Michael Malice, and other people. So the upshot of this, I was raised as a Christian. I read a lot of very interesting people. A lot of those interesting people turned out to be Jewish. And those interesting people who turned out to be Jewish were railing against the government, were railing against the welfare state, were railing against intervention and redistributionism and socialism and you name it. So here's the fascinating thing for me. This is what I really want people to understand. It's not just me who've gone through this. But look... I ended up, in a sense, as the unwitting carrier of a lot of pro-free market, small government ideas that came from Jewish people. So I didn't really think of them that way. I didn't really think of them as Jewish ideas because it's not not based on theology, not based on tradition, not based on superstition, you name it, based on reasoned arguments. So I brought these ideas to my Christian friends, to my agnostic friends, to my atheist friends, Small government, no welfare state, no socialized medicine, sound currency, no central banking, gold-backed, you name it. All the traditional libertarian slash voluntarist slash anarcho-capitalist ideas. I brought these ideas to my Christian friends and agnostic and atheist friends. And they mostly hated them or were indifferent to them. So... For me, when people say that, well, you see, the Jewish people are somehow responsible for all the disasters of the modern world in the world that I grew up in, I absorbed countless warnings about where the world was going, often from Jewish people. Jewish people were sounding the trumpet saying, welfare state bad, government control bad, regulation bad, fiat currency bad, national debts bad, government schools terrible. Communist infestation of academia, the media, the government. Terrible. So when there's a group of people who are Jewish who are sounding the alarm consistently about the direction that the world is going towards more coercion, towards collectivism, the number of Jews that I read who railed against existentialism, postmodernism, you name it, was legion. And again, it wasn't until later that I really cared or thought or didn't. It doesn't really matter. I don't care if you're Jewish or not. Just make a good argument. And so when people say, well, you see, the Jews are doing terrible things to our society, the way that I grew up and the people that I read, there was a whole lot of Jews saying, don't go this way. Don't go to the welfare state. Don't go to open borders. Don't go to big government. Get the money supply back into the hands of the people. Get it restrained by a gold standard. And a lot of the Jews that I read, 
actually, I came more to anarcho-capitalism, to, to the stateless society, and then read and turned out that a lot of Jews who made great arguments for that as well. Murray Rothbard is fantastic about that stuff. The man apparently wrote in his sleep. <laughs> he could just keep writing and writing. A man of great personal charm and charisma. A friend of mine knew him and, and uh, in academic circles. So this idea that, oh, the Jews are undermining doing this and doing that, it's like, not the Jews that I knew, not the Jews that I read, the Jews that I knew and read were warning specifically and loudly and vociferously against exactly where the West was heading and where the West has headed. So for me, when a whole bunch of non-Jews don't listen to Jews sounding countless warnings about the direction of society, when society goes badly, blaming Jews, I don't see it. I don't, in fact, I kind of see the opposite. It's sort of like this. It's like you've got a Jewish doctor, not the most impossible thing in the world. You have a Jewish doctor and you're a chain smoker. And the Jewish doctor says, you got to stop chain smoking. Chain smoking is really bad. It's really, it's going to kill you, man. It's terrible for you. And you don't listen and you don't listen and you don't listen. And then you get lung cancer. And then you know what you say? The Jews cause lung cancer. <laughs> Come on. Come on. Do you know how? Many Jewish people, and of course a lot of non-Jewish people, were warning about the growth of the size and power of the state. Were warning about the dangerous effects of fiat currency and central banking. And the illusion of near-infinite national debts. Especially the Jews who had come, like Ayn Rand, from communism. You don't think they knew? You don't think they were able to articulate the problems? But the government, voted for by... Non-Jews, what are Jews in America? 2% of the population. They're only 0.2% of the world's population and falling. So it was the voters who said, we want the welfare state. We want free stuff. Okay, there's a lot of the female voters, but largely non-Jewish female voters who wanted all of this free stuff. So tell me how that is all the fault of the Jews. Tell me how. It was the boomers in the West who decided to give up on transferring or transmitting the values of Western civilization, of Christian Western civilization, down to their children. It was the Jews who often wrote against the hedonism of the baby boomers. You can read Murray Rothbard's articles on the great relearning where it's like, hey, let's all live together and not bathe. Oh, we've got ticks and scabies. It's like, do we really have to learn this lesson again? It was the boomers, often the Christians, who pursued the sex, drugs, and rock and roll hedonism of the 60s and failed to guard the gates of the institutions they had inherited from the infiltration of hard leftists. And you can say, well, you know, but it's all the Jews, and it's like, no, nobody else has any responsibility at all? Nobody? Nobody? The Jews are very talented. <laughs> Come on. 0.2% of the world's population, 22% of the Nobel laureates. Yeah, I don't think that's all just in-group preferencing. Dr. Jonas Salk, uh, one of the great scourges of the world, was polio. Millions. Iron lungs. You, you, I mean, FDR himself. I mean, in, in wheelchairs and so on. You could catch it from a swimming pool. It was a terror of the world. Eliminated by a Jewish researcher who didn't even patent the vaccine. He said, can you patent the sun now? Could it be patented or not? I don't know. But he still didn't even try. 
there are terrible events in the world with nothing to do with the Jews. I mean, the, the Pope is, is washing the feet of migrants and screaming at everyone to open up the borders to the Third World Horde. That, that, does that have anything to do with problems in Europe? No. Of course it does. The mob put Socrates to death without the Jews. Well, the Dark Ages had a lot more to do with Islam than the Jews. And when it comes to, you know, I mean, Barack Obama likes or wrote positively of, of black nationalism, Louis Farrakhan, the guy he's smiling with, wrote positively of black nationalism. And there's this belief that, oh, we get all these whites together, white nationalism, and vastly majority white countries had civil wars. They had hundreds of years of religious warfare. They started World War I and World War II, which could easily have taken down the entire planet. We have to start judging people by the quality of their arguments, not by the ethnicity of their heritage or the collective ambiguous beliefs of a larger tribe. So yes, if you want to look at central banking, if you want to look at the media, yes, there are a number of Jews in there. And that's the result of high verbal IQ and hard work. And yes, there's some in-group preference. There are a lot of Jews in central banking, and there are a lot of Jews who staunchly opposed central banking. So if you want to say that I'm only going to look at the slice of Jews who represent everything I dislike, that's bigoted, that's biased. If you're not going to widen the tent, if you're not going to open things up and say that there are incredible Jews who were specifically and accurately warning the entire Western world against greed, dependence on the state, big giant government, fiat currency, national debts, you name it. That's wrong. That's wrong. And you can't just keep pumping hatred into the world for an entire ethnic group, an entire religious group. It's wrong. If you don't like stories in the media, if you don't like stories coming out of Hollywood, write better stories. Compete. Or organize boycotts. Or if you don't like mainstream media narratives and you think it's all the Jews, contribute to other people. Start your own channel. It's a marketplace of ideas. Stop being resentful and pointing fingers. Get involved and build something yourself. This complaining, this rage can lead down this horribly dark path. Religion has value as it stands in the world. Religion is not philosophical. It has philosophical elements, but it is not philosophical. I prefer and pursue the approach of rational empirical philosophy. If you disagree, if you disagree with people's ideas, make better arguments. Reason better. Study harder. Learn how to speak more eloquently. Compel the attention of the world with the power of your rhetoric. 
and the force of your analysis. That's called civilization. And that's all we've got between us and the well-armed beasts we can descend to like that. You disagree with the religion? Argue against its premises. Argue against its arguments. You don't go into a church, a mosque, or a synagogue and gun people down in cold blood. Arguments are the civilized handshake of mental interaction. Arguments are all we have. The alternative to arguments is war. We all have to make decisions. We all have to get things done. You understand that the alternative to arguments is war. And war will cost us everything. We have become too well-armed, too mechanized to afford war anymore. And these kinds of escalations can continue. Arguments are elementally necessary for us to survive. Conversation is required for us to continue as a species to draw breath. We must reason with each other or we die in a heap. Reason. Evidence. Clarity. Compassion. These are arguments. Lead and evil and murder are not arguments. <laughs>